0: You're listening to the Pimpcron Podcast. Welcome, one and all, to episode 100 of the Pimpcron Warhammer Podcast. And I'm very excited to have met this milestone in the last two years. I know officially the two year anniversary will not be for another month. But still, 100 episodes is still pretty cool. I have my Patreon supporters to thank for all of your support, and I appreciate everybody listening to the podcast and writing in and all of that for the last 100 episodes. So tonight, we are talking about a Real Talk with the Pimcron where we discuss not what you want out of a codex, but what you need out of a new codex, because... With 9th edition on the horizon, I think we're probably going to be getting some new codexes for all the armies. And we also have a Want That or Want That Not with the Inferno collection, which I'll just let you wonder what that is if you don't already know. I had no idea what it was, but it's kind of neat. I also have a test track mailbox from Dave, and he is a return writer in her, and he's discussing the chapter approved. And finally, I have a, well, here's an idea, and a really neat way to make sure that all of your armies stay the same paint scheme exactly, and they match each other over several, several years. And it's something I've discovered, and something I use, and it's awesome. So, um, besides, um, this being my busy season at work, and I am very, very busy, um, I have not had any real time to do anything. I did play Brutality with my buddy Derek the other night, and uh, we played two games, and we played two co-op games as part of a campaign. And wouldn't you know it, I have been playing on the campaign for quite some time, and I have several characters that are nearly godly. It only goes up to level 15, and I've got at least one person, if not two, that are level 14. And I was very excited to show Derek, hey, look how high level my people are now. And unfortunately, Derek comes over and I cannot find my roster sheet. I cannot find it. So I ended up having, I'm I'm sure I'll find it at some point, but I ended up making a new list for a new campaign. And instead of a bunch of people infected with a virus that they're trying to cure, I am now a bunch of elemental wizards and some of their cohorts that are looking for their lost friend. So I have one water wizard, I have one fire wizard, and I have one earth wizard. And they are looking for their air friend. And in addition to them, I have a fire atronach, essentially, and I have a treant. So that is my warband right now. And they're looking for their lost buddy. So that uh, we played two co-op games, and they were for the campaign. And they were a lot of fun. I actually kind of prefer co-op games versus the AI versus um, just competitive, you know, you versus me sort of thing. And the first one we did was the In attack, which is just several monsters versus you. And um, we did pretty well. We kind of ran out of time as far as the turn finished at turn four. And uh, we did not kill all of them. We killed two out of four of them. And they, believe it or not, that, that battle was crazy because I have not saved so much in my entire life. And same thing with Derek. I mean, I was saving for my people a lot. He was saving for his people a lot. The monsters we were saving for easily. It was just craziness. So essentially, this giant monster would attack. We were using minotaurs, but obviously you could use anything because it's brutality. And uh, this giant Minotaur would attack one of my people and do like three or four hits on them. And I'd try to save it and my save might be a 20% or a 30%. And I save all four. <laughs> so then I strike back and I might do, let's say, two hits on this monster. And Derek rolls for the monster and saves both of them. I mean, it was amazing. I My Treant went toe-to-toe with this Minotaur, like, four different times. He'd charge the Minotaur, the Minotaur would charge him, he'd charge the Minotaur, the Minotaur would charge him, and both times they just bounced off each other. It did nothing, and it was pretty hilarious, actually. So, um, that is our first game. The second game, we played a big boss, and we played a colossal Squigoth that was the monster, and that was a lot of fun. And uh, we, unfortunately, the Squigoth did not roll well. He had regeneration, he could regenerate two hit points each turn, and he kept failing that. Matter of fact, one of the times he tried to regenerate that, he actually lost another hit point, and um, just, it was not in his favor. We won that fairly easily. He killed two or three of our people out of five, but then we killed him on turn three. So, it's just um, several times we rolled critical damage, so we did double damage against him, and essentially if you play Warhammer, it's like you know, rolling a 6 on a D6. It's like, wow, that's a lot of damage. So, anyway, it was a lot of fun. I enjoy hanging out with Derek, so that was fun, and I was happy to get back in the saddle for brutality. But, um, that is essentially it. I've been slowly painting on some of my Chaos stuff, and I'm very excited about Chaos right now. I don't know why, but I am. I guess it's because I sold all of my other Chaos stuff, and, uh, that's, um... So all those models are new. I got three start collecting sets is what I got. So I've been putting together a bunch of stuff and all that. But honestly, I haven't had a whole lot of time with work and all. I have not put a whole lot of paint to model or even a lot of glue to model. It's just that time of year. And matter of fact, I'm getting ready to yawn again. All right. I cut the yawn out, but I I keep stopping recording to yawn. And that's not... A great thing, because I am extremely tired. Anyway, let's get on with the show, and happy 100th episode. Let's open the Tesseract Mailbox. In this edition of Real Talk with the Pimpcron... That's not Real Talk with the Pimpcron. I'm dumb. This is the Tesseract Mailbox. And in this edition of the Tesseract Mailbox, we have returning... Write-in person. I don't know what that would be called. Return person that wrote in before. Dave Case writes in again, and he says, Hey, Pimpcron, still loving the show. Nearly caught up with the backlog. I just finished episode 94. I agree. The old chapter approves were great. I've got three of them. Not bought any of the newer ones. They just seem like a cash grab. We've updated the points to balance the game, but you'll have to pay for it. Pay for it. I also have some feral orcs and will send you some pics later, currently 2am in the UK. Keep up the good work, Dave Case. Well, thanks for writing in, Dave, and he wrote at PimpCron at gmail.com. You can also reach us at facebook.com slash PimpCron, or you can call, which nobody ever does. Anyway, thanks for writing in, Dave. And. Uh, Yeah, I I mean, I'm not going to get into it because I already had a whole segment on it, but the Old Chapter of Roofs were awesome. And um, he sent me pictures of his feral orcs that he had made from this same book that I had already discussed. And it's funny because he did so many of the things that I also did with my feral orcs that I've slowly started building. And essentially what it is, is he took boar boys and added bike parts to them, which is so funny because that's exactly my boar boys, my cyborg boys, that I purchased. I did not buy them. But someone did a bang-up job on making these cyborg boys, and they look very similar to Dave's. And another thing he did, which is how I'm making my commandos, I wanted to make feral commandos. Like, this is a local tribe of orcs that they've employed to you know help them in battle or whatever, so they're sneaky and, and whatnot. So, I bought a bunch of savage orcs, and they already have a knife in their hand. So, what you do is you just cut off one hand, and you put a hand with a pistol. And now, all of a sudden, they got a slug on a choppa, and they're perfectly good. And uh, they're wearing the loincloths and all that stuff. And it's so funny, because the picture he sent me of his models is exactly that. It is savage orc boys with the hand missing, and they're holding a pistol. And, um... It's, it's just funny. Great minds think alike, I think is what I told him. And uh, the once again, the chapter proves were a great idea and a great way to add flavor to your armies and do things that kind of out of the ordinary. I have really considered doing an all-feral orc army and just doing, let's say, commandos and Snickrot and whatever and just doing an army of all that and Squigoths. And I think that would be really, really cool. I have one squig off as, as it is. And I was just thinking, man, if I could do just... I mean, also, it would be kind of the start to a feral orc... I mean, a savage orc... Whew, a savage orc army as well. If I bought more of these savage orc boys and maybe some gore gruntas and I mean, you could really proxy an entire orc army more or less out of the savage orc line and make them all feral orcs. I mean, use all the regular rules for all the stuff. Just make them savage orcs. And boy, it is really, really tempting. I've almost debated on getting rid of my orc trucks and getting two more squiggoths, So I have three squigoths. Because I was using my squiggoth the other day. It's one of my pride and joys. One of my favorite models and one of the last models I'll ever get rid of. And, um... I love my paint job I did on it. I love the model. I love how it plays. I just love everything about the Squigoth. And I was thinking, man, I could do three Squigoths and let's say, you know, 60 Commandos and Snickrot and a bunch of other stuff, maybe some Grots, go get some, uh, I don't know. I don't think they make savage looking Grots anymore. I mean, they do as people on the Howdah, on the Arachnarok. They're like wearing loincloths and stuff, but I don't think they make models of grots that are savage looking, but you get the point. It would be a really, really unique looking thing. Um, you could take like a big mech gun and just make it a catapult for the orcs. I mean, it'd be really cool. Like, you know, every battle that you fight, people have like landed on this planet with a bunch of savage orcs on it and they're just fighting by any means necessary with their, you know, maybe they have pistols, maybe they don't, whatever. And, uh, or maybe this savage orc clan killed another orc clan and like a, a regular orc clan and took all their stuff and they don't entirely know how to use it all. Or you could say that, you know, maybe there was this big battle and there were savage orcs in the forest or whatever. And these regular orcs all got wiped out. And then the savage orcs saw them use these guns. Yelling, you know, daka, daka, daka. And it's shooting. So then they start doing it. And they pick up the campaign because they're savage orc boys. There's just a lot of cool things. I think kit bashing and being creative is a really cool part of this hobby. And um, it's just funny to see that you did the exact same stuff I did. Although you did it much earlier. Because I'm assuming you did it when the actual chapter approved came out. But anyway, thank you for listening, Dave. I appreciate it. And thanks for writing in. Want that or want that not? This edition of want that or want that not, we are not talking about models at all. Believe it or not. I think this may be the first time that we've ever done that. Not positive. But the point is, is that I was looking at the new releases of Games Workshop on their website, and something struck me as very odd. It's called Classic Inferno Print-On-Demand Collection. And I was like, what the hell is Inferno? I've never even heard of this. This has flown completely under my radar, and matter of fact, I haven't even seen anything about it online. So this is just a strange sort of situation. So you may be wondering with your... with yourself to yourself i don't know in yourself outside of yourself what is classic inferno so inferno well let me read the description of it because it says inferno magazine was the first publication ever from black library way back in the wild days of 1997 a bi-monthly magazine gathering together short stories comics art and interesting features It delved in the worlds of Warhammer in a way that codexes and rulebooks couldn't and acted as a launching point for new writers and characters who soon found their way into novels and sometimes even games. So this is a collection of Inferno's issues 26 through 35 and it's pretty neat. I mean it's the judging by the covers the covers look really nice there's really neat artwork in them. And if this started in 1997, this is well before my time, because I did not get into this hobby until about 2009-ish. So, 1997, I guess it stopped by the time I was doing it. I have no idea. But, essentially, it is a collection of short stories and artwork and all of that. And it is actually delving into the worlds of 40K, and Warhammer Fantasy Battles, and Necromunda as well as Mordheim and Gorkamorka, And this is a little bit of trivia that I did not know. This Inferno was the first thing the Black Library ever did, which I already said. But Black Library was initially just the name of the team that brought together this magazine. It was not actually like a publishing house or whatever. And I thought that's kind of neat. It eventually settled on a format of two fantasy... And two science fiction stories per issue with ancillary features such as standalone artwork and comics and cutaway diagrams of fictional machines from the stories, which is pretty cool. And maps of fictional battles and mock-up books and dossiers and uh, correspondence by characters in the settings, which is all this is just very, very cool in my opinion. I'm not a fluff bunny, but seems very neat. What's also pretty neat about Inferno is it had a policy of accepting unsolicited submissions and publishing new authors where they may not have had the chance to be published otherwise. And if you are a writer or know a writer, it really matters a lot for you to be published in a real publication so you can add that to your portfolio so that you can get other work. And um, it's funny because many writers who want to publish novels for Black Library, such as um, C.L. Werner and uh, ben Counter, they they began their professional writing careers with short stories in the Inferno magazine. And I think that's pretty cool. I mean, it's it seems like this was another one of those things where old GW, before it was big GW, it was a stepping stone for people that were not already in the industry and to get their name out there and to tell really neat stories and such. Now, this is funny because we... Uh, I've never heard of this again, but it was actually relaunched in... Well, first off, okay. This uh, Inferno magazine only ran from uh, 1997 to 2004, but then it was relaunched in 2018, and they made it a quarterly anthology series. And uh, that's just interesting. This is a... The reason why this is interesting to me is because it's completely a facet of Games Workshop. I have never ever heard about matter of fact i didn't even hear about the 2018 relaunch i have no idea about that but if you are a fluff bunny this is a bunch of episodes or episode episodes issues and i mean honestly it's 80 bucks sure but it's 10 issues of the old inferno and you're talking about from roughly i don't know 98 i think is where these are from 1998 and uh I mean if you're if you're not liking the new direction of 40k in 9th edition and how it's play school 40k, or if you're a hater on Age of Sigmar and you miss Warhammer Fantasy Battles, 80 bucks for 10 issues, I mean it's really not that bad. I would be tempted to actually buy this. So that would make that a want that for this. It's only gonna be printed for um Two weeks actually. This is only on demand for two weeks. So if you want to hurry up and get it, it is eight dollars an issue. But you're getting a lot of cool fluff and background lore. So if you're into that sort of thing, I definitely say buy it. Uh, The only reason why I'm not going to go out and buy this is because I am certain I do not have the time to actually read all these because I have very little time as it is. So That is my only caveat why I am not actually going to buy this, but it is definitely a want that. In theory, if I had more free time, and I had more time to just sit down and read, I would definitely want to buy this. I do sometimes thumb through uh, old white dwarves and things like that. I've got a whole stack of like probably 20 white dwarves from around the early 2000s, I guess. And uh, I do enjoy looking at the pictures and things like that. I mean, I'm functionally illiterate, so I can't read the stories. But the pictures are really cute. And uh, they've got a lot of hobby stuff in those magazines and whatnot. So this is definitely a want that for me. It's just unrealistic that I'm going to buy it and read it. (laughs) So you got two weeks, people. You better hurry up if you want it. Now, here's an idea. On this edition of, well, here's an idea, I have an idea that will save you a lot of headache in the future when you go to add on to your existing army. It is something I have begun doing because my memory is garbage. And (laughs) that is, you need to start writing down what paints you use for your models and... The easiest way to know that you're not going to miss where this where this list is or lose it or whatever is to just take one of your biggest models and paint the names of the colors on the bottom of the base. And then you know forever exactly that you use Dawnstone Green and then you know um, uh, Moot Green or whatever stupid combination of colors that you're using it is insanely helpful matter of fact here's a little story about how dumb i am so when i painted my first two dracoths i for my stormcast i painted them and i fell in love with them i am in love with my paint job i'm going to toot my own horn here i love the way the green came out in the dracoths and Past me is smarter than current me, because past me thought, you know what, I'm never going to remember this combination of greens I used, because they're all kind of vague, so why don't I write it underneath the Drakoth's in paint? So, when I went to, this is like probably two years later, when I go to paint my Lord Celestent on Drakoth, I can't remember what paints i use so i take a really hard look at my tempesters, and i'm looking and i'm trying to con- convince myself that i could figure out what layers of paint that i used and whatever and i did a rough approximation of it i completely forgot that i had written the paints down and at that juncture i was wishing that i had unbeknownst to me i had and i painted that dracoth which is um Not nearly as good as the others. It looks okay, but it's just kind of off. Have you ever gotten like the perfect combination of paint? And you're like, oh my gosh, that complements each other. That looks beautiful. That is awesome. And sometimes you get another combination of very similar paints. And you're like, you know, something's just off with that. It just does not click the way it should. Well, unfortunately, my my Lord Celestin on Drakoth is like that. He just doesn't... The, the greens of the Drakoth just don't click, and I couldn't figure out why. And after I was done painting it, I was like, you know what? I should have written down underneath the base what colors I use for those Tempesters. And as I was thinking about it, I just happened to flip a Tempester over, and lo and behold, is my list of greens that I use for the fucking dragons. I am stupid. So don't be like me. You should definitely, if you're not going to keep like an Excel sheet or something like that of all the different paint colors, the easiest, the super easiest thing to do is take a Sharpie or take a paint and paint the names in... I start in like the base color up top. I do it in order of what I'm going to apply it. So whatever the combination for those greens were, I'm going to say you know, dark green, whatever that's called, I'll just say Dark Angels Green, and then underneath that I'll say Warpstone Glow, and then I'll say, you know, Moot Green, or whatever the combination was. You write it in the order that it's going to be applied, and then when you go to add on to that army later on in life, and you're not stupid, and forgot that you already wrote it down, and wish you had wrote it down, then you are already equipped to paint stuff exactly the way it was which is partially the reason why I will never buy a fully painted army is because I know I will want to add on to that army and the chances are extremely uh, slim that I am going to be able to match their painting style and the exact blends of colors that they used and then my new units are going to not match my old units and that's going to be very eye twitching for me. So you should do this and then, I guess, an ancillary thing is you should also remember that you did it because I am an idiot. Now it's time for Real Talk with Pentcron. On this edition of Real Talk with the Pimp crown we are wondering exactly what do we want out of a new codex. It doesn't mean your specific army codex. It doesn't mean your opponent's codex. It just means in general, what do we want out of a codex? I don't think anybody usually sits down and actually thinks about it. So with the onset of 9th edition here and the assumption that we're going to be getting new codexes soon for all the armies, and by soon I mean uh, in the next year or the next two years, um... I'm assuming they're, they're going to start all new with the new codexes. It um, It's kind of a good time to kind of codify exactly what makes a good codex. Because you always hear people complaining about codexes. Like, oh, my codex is shit. And then there's other people complaining that, oh, their codex is so awesome. And there's a bunch of gnashing of teeth and bullshit like that. Well, it all happens to us eventually, right? We hear waves of new rumors and they're slowly building on the internet, and maybe a leaked picture here or there, or whatever, and our codex for our army is on its way. Now, there's one of two waves wash over us once this happens. Either dread that they're going to ruin the good things in our codex, or potentially the hope that they may fix some of the things that are wrong with our codex. But if we're looking at it with an adult eye and with a mature eye, instead of just assuming, oh, I would like the best of everything, I want my entire army to be top tier, and I want every single weapon that I have does d12 damage, and everything is strength 9, etc., etc., etc. There's there's actually some things that make a good codex, just like you're making a good story, or makes a good movie, or something like that. So the very first thing and pretty obvious is that and this is a this is a very minor thing, but it's still a nice thing about a new codex, is an expansion of the lore or new artwork. You know, these books GW puts out are second to none. They're gorgeous. They've got in a lot of cases brand new codex artwork, brand new lore, um different battles that have been added, different campaigns and new maps for where they control territory and All of that, and I think that's really cool. Um, I recall that the current Harlequins Codex has some of the coolest paintings in it, and uh, sometimes GW manages, I don't know who their artists are, but they manage to really wow you. I know that my Caridron Overlords Codex has some amazing artwork, and I hate the word amazing because everyone uses it, but it's legitimate. You open this two-page full spread of... These zinch demons in the air fighting Caradron Overlords. And you're like, oh my gosh, somebody actually painted that. And I don't know about you guys. I'm not super into the lore. But the lore gets a lot of people excited. What excites me more is that the pictures are really inspiring. And they, they look cool. And they're helping. This is something that we never see. We never actually see our people fighting the enemy or the ships shooting, or anything like that. And the artwork is the only chance for us to actually see those things in action the way that we imagine them in our head. So even though it's a very minor thing, you definitely want some new artwork and some new lore and the inevitable rehashing of existing lore. But that's what we want in a new codex. Now, that is obviously a very small, small portion of that. Getting into something meatier, we want new ways to use the things that we have. And, like, I mean, sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. Sometimes you agree with it, and sometimes you don't. I personally don't really like the current way that obliterators are treated. You know, the... I'm not even going to remember what it is, but you roll, like, a d6 three times or something like that for the strength and the AP and the damage. I think it's actually d3s you roll. But it, anyway, I really enjoyed it a lot better when you actually had to choose a weapon—a multi melta a las cannon, a auto cannon, or heavy bolter, or whatever—and um, twin flamers or twin meltas. And it, to me, it gave a much more tactical aspect to it. This is just extremely random, and it's—I'm not thrilled with it. I know they put out a ton of damage, but I'm just not—not not that thrilled with it. But The difference, though, is that whether I agree with it or not, it is a new way to use those. So, essentially, you know, you've played, let's say, dozens of games or maybe even more than that um, with your current codex. And if you take the time to play it in different ways, you probably know your codex pretty well. You know, all the units have their strengths and their weaknesses, and you have all that in your head. And all of them have a role in any list that you make. So... You're you're like you're basically saying to yourself, Okay, I'm gonna take this unit in case I run into vehicles or monsters, I'm gonna take this unit just to tar pit the opponent's elite melee units, and that sort of thing. So you know how they work. Well, if you never ever got a new codex, your army would end up getting stale. Because even though I'm not excited about the way obliterators currently are in 40k I'm, I am still have to at least give it credit that it is different than it used to be. So it makes me think about it differently. It has a different damage output. Sometimes a unit will have more. Some of it will have less, depending on what the change is from edition to edition. But the difference is is that there is an internal meta in a codex that is like, oh, this unit does this, this unit does this. This un- These two units are similar, but this one does it better for the points or whatever. And then, of course, there's the external meta of all the different armies against each other. Well, not only does a new codex give you a new external meta, you know, your codex strength versus others, but it also gives you a new internal meta because your different units can be better or worse per edition. For instance, gene stealers are much better than they used to be. And I have a ton of gene stealers. I've always loved them, even when they were terrible. And matter of fact, I'm a big fan of Flayed Ones, too. I always have been. I've owned 40 Flayed Ones painted since 6th uh, edition, and they were not even reasonably good until 8th. So, once again, they're going to be different on the paradigm of power in your own codex, but... That, whether you like it or not, like in my case with obliterators, at least it is different and it's changing and it gives you a reason to think about it. And that's what I like about it. The arguably bad thing about something like chess is that, guess what, it doesn't change. Like, there's no there's no new codex, there's no new models, there's no nothing. Chess is just chess. And it will never be anything other than chess unless somebody makes some weird variant of it. So the constant changing of how a unit acts and how it acts in relation to other models in the same codex and in a uh, summary way, how the whole codex works against other codexes is a really cool thing and we want that out of a codex. You'd be pretty pissed if you bought a new codex and all the stats and all the abilities were the exact same from the previous book. You'd be mad. So that is something we have to take into consideration. We also want new units. That's kind of obvious. This is a little more obvious than the new ways to use things. We want new units. Man, nothing gets me more excited like seeing new models and units added to one of my codexes. If you're like me and enjoy changing the way you use the existing units, you've got to be really jazzed about brand new units being added to the mix. And once again... New options, new ways of doing things, new paradigms. It just freshens up the game and freshens up your codex. For instance, I am very, very excited for all the new Necron models and the Space Marine models, actually. But the Necron models especially, I'm very excited for. And I don't really care if they're good or not. (laughs) I I just want new ways to use things and new options. Because if we really think about it... From the list building, the choices you make in list building, to the choices you make on the battlefield, this entire game is about choices. And the more often that those choices, uh uh-huh, what am I trying to say here? If everything always stays the same, it becomes less of a choice, because everything is static. If everything is constantly changing, or changing periodically, then that makes things more fluid, and you have to reassess, okay, wait a second, flayed ones used to suck, but looking at this now, they look pretty good. You have to reassess everything, and that is the part that I really enjoy. Now, also, of course, you've got new options for list building. One thing that I've enjoyed about the new codexes is the inclusion of the stratagems. Now, I know they can go a little crazy, but there are new ways to use your army, not only because of new stats, not only because of new uh, units, but also because of new stratagems and new ways of using the units internally. And... I overall, I like the introduction of Stratagems in 8th edition. I think it gets a little crazy sometimes, but overall I think stratagems are a really neat thing. And one of the things that this game was missing is resource usage and resource allocation. A lot of board games will have, you know, materials or resources or whatever. You mine stuff or you trade stuff. And There's a lot of strategy in the choices made when you're using a limited quantity of something. You know, am I going to use it now? Am I going to use it later? Am I going to wait till later to use it? Or am I going to just unload everything, blow your whole load right now in the beginning of the game? Um, So, I think that hopefully a lot of these stratagems get changed with your new codex. I think that's a good thing because just like your units staying the same in between codexes would be really boring. Stratagems staying the same in between codexes would be really boring as well. So I touched on this a minute ago, but I want to go back and really hammer in this idea that the new synergies of your units matter a lot. And like I said, when you're changing the new stratagems, you're changing the unit stats, you're changing the paradigm of the way things work, then you're also changing synergies. With point differences and ability differences, it really makes a difference in the utility that you get from each different unit. And essentially, you know, flayed ones did not used to be an option at all. Like, you were just like, oh my gosh, those guys are garbage, I'm going to use something else like Wraiths or maybe Lich Guard or something like that for Necrons. But in 8th edition, I think they've done a really good job of making pretty much every unit good at something. They may not be the best at melee or the best at shooting, but they all have a role to play. And I think they've done a pretty good job of that compared to previous editions where there were some units that you just plain did not take because they were just hot garbage and there was no point to take them. So I think they've done a better job of leveling the playing field. And that is better for the strategist. I keep going back to new choices when your old book, let's say, Flayed One sucked, and your wraiths were your go-to thing, and maybe your Lich Guard. Okay, well now, let's say all the stats have changed for those three units, and the points have changed for those three units, and now you have to reassess, well, hmm, for the points, is a wraith better than a Flayed One? Or for the points, is a Lich Guard better than a Praetorian? Or whatever, and the combination of abilities and combination of points and the economy that you can get out of that is going to change which things are worth taking. And I think that's a really great thing. Honestly, I think that we are looking for new units, new ways to use units, new synergies, new stratagems, and new fluff and artwork and things like that. And I think that's what really makes a good codex you'll see some codexes get panned by critics because, oh, it's too samey, they didn't fix any of my bad stuff. Or you'll hear them get panned because, oh my god, they're so overpowered, or whatever. You really should not be hoping... For a power increase in your codex. That's really not what you want. It's kind of like asking a child what they want for dinner. And they'll be like ice cream. And you're like well okay. You might want ice cream. But you don't need ice cream. And it's the same thing with the new codex. You may want your codex to be top tier. But honestly that's not really what you need. What you need. Is for it to be competitive. And for it to be viable. And all the things that I've already explained. And that is what makes a good codex.